If you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. For this episode, we'll be looking at loon shots and how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars, cure diseases, and most importantly here on the Innovation Engine, transform industries. Among the topics we'll discuss are why structure eats culture for breakfast, how and why phase transitions make the perfect environment for innovation to flourish, and the difference between P-shaped and S-shaped loon shots. Here with us today to talk those topics and more is Safi Bacall. Safi is the author of Loon Shots, which will be published the very same day this episode airs. Loon Shots was named one of the Washington Post's 10 leadership books to watch in 2019, and Business Insider called it one of 14 books everyone will be reading this year. Safi received his BA, summa cum laude in physics from Harvard, and his PhD from Stanford. After working for three years as a consultant for McKinsey, he co-founded Cinta Pharmaceuticals, a biotech company developing new drugs for cancer, and served as its CEO for 13 years. In 2008, he was named Ernst & Young's New England Biotech Entrepreneur of the Year, and in 2011, he served on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology Working Group on the Future of National Research. Welcome to the Innovation Engine, Safi. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you and look forward to the publication of the book. I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced reading copy, and it's a great read. So I want to start off talking about culture and structure. Culture tends to get an awful lot of attention in management books, but you're a believer that small changes in structure are what's really necessary to drive change in... Sorry. Culture tends to get an awful lot of attention in management books, but you're a believer that small changes in structure are what's really necessary to drive change in groups. What are some of the dynamics at play that make that the case? Sure. The, um, when, I, when I started as an entrepreneur, I think I was in my early 30s, I uh, started a biotech company with chemists, biologists, with this goal of uh, creating a new cancer drug. And I read everything I could find, like a lot of you know, young entrepreneurs. I wanted to build the best team and company and how could we deliver on this big mission that we had and empower employees and give good returns to our investors. And almost everything I read was about culture. And there were a couple of things that after, I mean, firstly, that all sort of started to blend together after a while, after the 10th or 50th or 100th sort of uh, book about culture. But there were a couple of odd things that just didn't quite compute, especially because I, I have a more technical background, a science background. But um, one is you would read, you know, you would see these cover stories of magazines and they would be interviewed, you know, that did really well. And they'd be interviewing the CEO about, you know, what was the secret to his or her success. And you'd hear, well, the secret's really in our culture. And uh, so you start, you know, reading and taking notes, like what's all this culture stuff I can do better. And then, you know, two weeks later, you'd see the same companies in the toilet. What happened, you know, the culture didn't 
change. So what, you know, what happened all of a sudden? And then the other thing that was sort of odd was that uh, when you're a young entrepreneur or a young manager, you, uh, you're at a small company and you, uh, you, you sort of, you go out for drinks with your friends and you, you all sort of pat each other on the back saying, the, uh, you know, we're the real risk takers. We have this like, innovative culture and all those guys at the uh, big companies, they really, um, you know, they're really risk averse. And that's why all the new innovative stuff comes from small companies like ours. And then as you grow up and you sort of mature in a company, which you start doing partnerships and you start spending a lot of time with those bigger corporate folks. And then you go out to dinner with them or have drinks and they turn out to be exactly like you. There's really no difference. And then sometimes you hire them and they join you. And as soon as they jump ship and they join you, all of a sudden the tie comes off and they're pounding the table about some wild idea. They're just as innovative as you. They're, they're really no different. And then you put them back in, in the company they came from and then the tie goes back on. This. So what is it about? It's not something inherent in the people. What is it? And it reminded me of uh, a glass of water. So if you think about it, and stay with me on this. Okay. If you think about you. it, you stick your finger in a glass of water, you can swirl it around. The molecules just slosh around, right? That's always true, except as I dial down the temperature, all of a sudden, the behavior of those molecules will completely change. Become, you can't stick your finger through anymore. It becomes totally rigid. So the behavior completely changed. But why? There was no lead CEO molecule with a bullhorn saying, let's, let's, let's slosh around today and let's be totally rigid tomorrow and let's go back to sloshing around. There's no sort of manual on culture. There's something that causes the dynamic of those molecules to change. And that's a small change in temperature. So you can think of the temperature as elements of structure. And there is, you know, the insight that kind of ultimately went into this, this book and ultimately became kind of a model and a certain mathematics and a new way of thinking about the behaviors of group and what that reveals about innovation and teams or companies or any kind of group is that it may not matter very much what the CEO says from the top or, or, or how individual molecules behave. There's some in science, it's called an emergent property. There's some property of the collective that's important. And there are these parameters or variables in, in matter that would be like temperature or density of this or density of that, that are elements of structure that control whether something will be solid or liquid. And when we step back, we come back to the real world where you and I are sitting with real people and real teams and real companies. What does that translate into? It's certain elements of how we design our organization, the kind of incentives we put in place for our people. Which do they care more about? The success of their project, which is kind of a focus on nurturing crazy ideas and making, or getting promoted. Success of the project or getting promoted. Those are, there's a competition between those two things. And whenever you have a competition between two things, that's when you get a phase transition. Yeah. And so I, I love many of the anecdotes that are in the book. Uh, the, the first part of the subtitle is how to nurture the crazy ideas that win wars. And if I remember from reading correctly, the Bush veil rules 
played into that. Can you share with listeners what the Bush Vale rules are and why sometimes it pays to be a gardener rather than a genius? Sure. So um, the war that is in the kind of opening part of the book is, is World War II. And if you look backwards in time from the benefit of hindsight, certainly what we know today is, oh, it was inevitable that you know when we won that war. But it's interesting, if you go back to the late 1930s, if you go back to, let's say, 1939, just before the war really blew up, the odds did not look good for the Allies. I mean, had there been prediction markets, they, they, they would have favored Nazi Germany. Why? Because Nazi Germany had an incredible technology lead on the U.S., England, and the rest of the Allies. They had these things called U-boats, which were these submarines that the Allies had no answer for, and they would, shoot, they would look like they could shoot down ships at will in the uh, oceans, and that's exactly what they did. The U-boats were sinking more ships every month than the Allies could build. They had these new kinds of planes that made up the German Luftwaffe that looked ready to bomb Europe into submission, which they did in the first few weeks. And then in uh, early 1939, two German scientists discovered something called nuclear fission, which is splitting the atom, nuclear power something that put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever invented by man. So the odds did not look good. And Vannevar Bush was the dean of engineering at MIT at the time, and he had some experience working or consulting for the military. He was also a brilliant inventor and engineer. And he was a very successful entrepreneur. He started a small company that is now called Raytheon, a very large uh, electronics uh, company. He quit his job, moved to Washington, and talked his way into a meeting with FDR, President Roosevelt. And it was a 10-minute meeting, and that 10-minute meeting probably changed the course of the war more than any such meeting. And what did he do? He understood intuitively this idea that innovation depends more on structure rather than culture. He understood that military culture was tight and disciplined. And not only could he not change that, he shouldn't change that because that's what you need to deliver, uh, build millions of guns and ships and deliver them across four continents and move soldiers in battle. You need a certain kind of culture and that culture is not conducive for innovation. And so what he understood is that you needed these two different types of phases, like liquid and solid. Solid was military, rigid, and very important to have that because you need that to win the war. But we also needed to catch up with Nazi Germany, which is liquid. And he understood you couldn't be in two phases at the same time. You just can't do it. It didn't matter if a general would tell his soldiers or his army staff, you know, innovate, innovate, innovate. It just wouldn't work. It doesn't make sense. You can't have water be solid and liquid at the same time. So Bush created a separate organization. He mobilized the nation's scientists for war. And in that organization, that's where they developed the radical new technologies. And so what Bush understood, that's the first bush Vale rule, is that you can't do both things at the same time. You need to separate. There's only one way two phases can coexist, and that's right at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, right at the cusp of a phase transition, right at the edge, life at 32 Fahrenheit. The two, you get blocks of ice and pools of liquid 
and they coexist separately. They're constantly exchanging molecules. Molecules melt off the ice and go into the liquid. Molecules swim in the liquid and latch onto the ice and freeze. There's a constant exchange, but they have this separate coexistence with a constant exchange. Phase In science, it's called phase separation and dynamic equilibrium. And so to innovate inside a very large organization, he created these two separate phases. He created two very different environments for those two different needs. And he learned to respect both. It's not about one is better or the other. That's a very common mistake that you know people who are the creative scientists or engineers strongly prefer A and sort of ridicule or make fun of B and vice versa. He understood, and that was absolutely essential to turning the course of the war and developing the innovations that the soldiers would eventually use and that the soldiers would give the scientists valid feedback. He understood that you had to have the separation, but you had to have balance and feedback and dynamic exchange between the two. And that's what he did. So the first two Bushfield rules are number one, separate your artists and your soldiers, the creatives working on high-risk ideas and the soldiers like the marketers, the regulatory people, getting those ideas out into the field. That's kind of Bushfield rule number one. And Bushfield rule number two is manage the transfer not the technology. The sort of myth of the genius entrepreneur building a great company or creating these great inventions on the back of his or her ideas is really a myth. The companies that have been most successful, the leaders that have been most successful, they manage more like a gardener. They're taking care of the balance between these two groups. They're not picking invention A or picking invention B, which is actually really demotivating to the creatives. Uh, working on the bench or even the soldiers in the field, but they're working to bring balance between these two groups. And most importantly, they're managing the transfer between the two of them because most innovations fail not in the supply of new ideas, but in the transfer of those ideas to the field. So the leaders that do very well are the ones who get rid of this sort of myth and, and Hollywood view or you that you read in a lot of magazines or articles that uh, of building up these legendary leaders who create all their own inventions and all their own ideas. And when you look at the people who really were incredibly successful, Vannevar Bush, for example, and turning the course to the war, and then the system that he developed end up evolving into the national research infrastructure of the United States, so the, the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Health, DARPA within the military, and so forth. All came out of his idea of creating balance between these two groups and independence between these two groups. The people who were really successful, like Bush and Theodore Vail was a, his predecessor, uh, who did that at AT&T, who was which the largest company in the country. And he created the Bell Labs to invent these radical technologies and the phone system to bring them into the field with his artists and soldiers. The people who really do that, they manage more as gardeners less as a Moses standing on the top of a mountain, you know, pointing with his staff at the next holy product, the next holy moonshot. So that's Bush and Vail, and those are the first, first couple rules. Phase separation, dynam- uh, uh, dynamic equilibrium, and learn to manage more as a gardener, maintaining the balance between those two, and less as a Moses dictating what will or won't work. Yeah. 
And you write in the book that project champions are vital for any new endeavor that will last long enough to make a mark. What makes project champions or gardeners in this case maybe so necessary? Most innovation fails in the transfer, much less in the supply of ideas. And and it's much less about incentives because you know the artist might say, Oh, you know, here's my beautiful new idea to the soldiers, and the soldiers, you know, may not pick it up, but the the artists, the creatives, or the engineers, or the designers, like, how could you not like my beautiful baby, this fantastic product? And they're just speaking different languages. The soldiers are out every day in the field with the customers, and they, you know, you take some early stage product, it never works right the first time. And the, you know, the, 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 the demo collapses in front of the customer and nobody wants to deal with it. It takes too long for the, the guy to figure out how to make it work and he doesn't get his commissions. They love new ideas, but it just doesn't work in practice. But the artists speak one language and the soldiers speak another language. They often trained in different schools. They have different values and different interests. So in order to make that work, you need someone who can bridge that divide. Essentially, you need a bilingual specialist, someone who has, who can speak in the language to the artists, artists, but also speak in the language of the soldiers. In other words, someone who has, let's say you're doing a science project, someone who has, uh, or it's a science-driven company. Let's say you have someone who can grasp enough of the science and get enough respect from the scientists or the creatives that they he can really get into the meat of it and listen and understand. And then at the same time, someone who has, he, that same person has enough business experience that he could take those ideas, sit down with the marketers and the product managers, the regulatory people, and walk, explain it in their language. Here's what it's supposed to do. Here's how it's different than the other stuff. And then when he gets the feedback, walk back. To the art. Someone, in other words, who can translate between the two groups. Because the ability to be bilingual fluent is pretty rare. Someone is usually either a great scientist or a great business person, but it's pretty rare that someone can be fluent in both and be taken seriously by both and have a ton of credibility on both sides. So a lot of kind of the more R&D intensive companies have learned this the hard way. For example, in, in my field in drug discovery, uh, you know, there's not a lot of biologists and chemists who really can write an NPV of a product in a way that makes sense to financial operators or talk about customer share and, and market segments and vice versa. There's not a lot of like business school type people who really understand marketing and so forth, who also understand molecular pathways inside cells. So you need someone who's maybe not as absolutely expert in both sides, but at least is fluent enough that can spend the time going between the two and man- helping with that transfer. Because that, that really is where most technologies fail is in the transfer and the lack of understanding between those two groups. Yeah. And so, so life for those with loon shots is not easy, but there are some things they can do to make their lives easier. One of those is getting used to hearing negative feedbacks about projects that they're working on and developing their ability to what you call LSC. So the Beatles had Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Loon shot holders may have Lucy in the Sky with Comets or Clouds, let's say. But what does that acronym really stand for in the book? 
Okay, I haven't heard that one before. Thanks for that <laughs> Beatles reference. Um, kind of brightens up my day. I'm just waiting for some... You got some other Beatles song for me? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I do use a couple acronyms mostly because I, I don't have a great memory and unless I put it in an acronym, I sometimes forget. But it, it, LSC I, is for, it stands for, for Listen to the Suck with Curiosity. So here's what I mean by that. If you are championing some idea, you have some project that you've been pouring your soul into and you might be, whether you're a, you know, an engineer or an artist or a writer or a, a scientist or a designer, any kind of creative that's been pouring your soul into some project, when you take that out into the world, it's not pleasant to hear that you know, an investor's not interested or a customer doesn't like it or, you know, some potential partner that you thought was going to work on you just kind of walks away. It can feel pretty bad. And the default instinct is to dismiss or reject because what you want, if you've been pouring your soul into something is reassurance that you're on the right track. And so you turn to your friends and your mentors and your mother and say, this is, this is good, right? I'm on there. And they're, they're like, yes, of course, this is good. Pat on the back, pat on the back. That doesn't help you with your long-term goals. In fact, other than that, I mean, you could, if you want to need that psychological reassurance, that's great. Everybody needs that. Um, but you should file that away. You should hashtag psychological reassurance and then file that away. And what you really need to survive, the really great innovators and leaders and entrepreneur have learned to listen to that suck with curiosity. And I, why do I add that like third? The curiosity, because if you've had any kind of management training or read any of the you know, basics of uh, project management or product management, there is this whole mantra of uh, active listening, which essentially sort of boils down to somebody tells you something, you sort of repeat it back to them so they feel heard. Uh, and that is very effective, especially if somebody's really angry at you. If you repeat back why they're angry at you, that actually is very effective in calming them down. Um, but just repeating back, like if, if, you, if you're the person with this project that you're incredibly invested in and someone just dumped all over it, an investor walked away or a partner walked away, just saying, I hear that you walked away. Okay. Doesn't really get you any. The people who are really good, the innovators who are really good, who go to that next level, they treat that feedback like a detective. They begin, that's just the beginning. They may repeat back, yes, I hear you're walking away. But then they begin investigating. They take aside the disappointment, they set that aside, and then they just get, they put on their Columbo hat that might be a little old reference for some people. I don't know. <laughs> they put on their investigative hat and say, well, I wonder why. You know, I'm, why is it that I'm so excited yet they're walking away? And then they, they chase after them. Hey, you know, I, I hear, you know, I understand you're walking away. That's totally fine. Help me understand. You know, what about it specifically? And only then, if you are really persistent at asking, why at, at listening to the suck, not just listening to the suck uh, 
and repeating it back, but getting really, really curious. Help me understand why. And they, you, you know, they give you a superficial answer like, oh, I, you know, I was just too busy and blah, blah, blah. Just keep going. Really, you're too busy. So did something not grab? Have you been grabbed by other products before? What was it that didn't quite grab you here that did quite grab you there? And then if you are really persistent and you're a really good detective and an investigator, a tiny little clue might pop out. Oh, you know, it's the first five second thing that I didn't think about that all the, you know, these guys are, are really focused on and I didn't notice. It's not the three years of work that went into that. It's something really right on the surface that I just, I just didn't see. And that is easy to fix, actually. And so listening to the suck with curiosity, if you're, if you're working on anything that you're putting your soul into, means whenever you get bad feedback or bad outcome, Set aside the personal stuff, spend whatever time you need to get reassurance, but set that aside and go be a detective. Get really, really curious about why. And that what you find out is that the people who are legendary innovators, if you look back on what they do, it's much less about coming up with new ideas. Everybody has new ideas. It's less that they're incredibly good at new ideas. It turns out that they're incredibly good at investigating failure. And that's their superpower. They really probe when something doesn't work and they tease out and identify those little clues that help them get to the next level. So let me ask you about the two different types of loon shots, P-shaped and S-shaped. What's the difference between the two? And can you give an example or two of of each kind? Sure. I I think of it more as P-type and S-type, but (laughs) P-shaped is fine too. Okay. The the uh, P type I think of as a product or a technology. So Loon Chat is an idea that everybody says won't work. The P, the champions are whoever's uh, championing it is generally written off as crazy. That's why I call it a, a Loon Shot. And, and something to keep in mind is that everybody knows what a moonshot is, but a moonshot is a destination. It's a big goal, like getting to the moon or curing cancer or eliminating poverty. But it doesn't tell you how you get there. So nurturing loon shots, those small ideas that get dismissed for years or even decades, that's how we get there. And you can think of two different types of loon shots. The P-type, the product or the technology is a technology that everybody says won't work. That might be, for example, you know, go back a century, that's the telephone. People said, well, you know, that's kind of, you'll never get that to work. And even if it works, it's irrelevant just a toy. Well, no, not really. Or uh, personal computers. Yeah, you know, if you get it to work, it's, it, you know, I don't think you can get it to work, even if it does. Or even the transistor. Yeah, you could never really make a switch out of solid state devices, out of semiconductors, because, you know, that's impossible. Um, and even if you can get it to work, that's, you know, who cares? Um, or jet engines. Uh, speaking of moonshots, uh, when Kennedy announced his goal in 1961 we, to Congress, we would put a man on the moon. That was a moonshot. But how would we get there? Well, it was jet propulsion and liquid fuel rockets. That had been suggested 40 years earlier by a guy named Robert Goddard. And when he suggested it, he was ridiculed. The New York Times had this whole editorial about like this guy, this physicist doesn't understand the basic laws of physics we teach in high school. Our name, you know, that Newton's laws of action react to tell you that rocket flight will never work in space. So jet engines 
were and, and liquid fuel propulsion and rocketry. That was a loon shot for 40 years that was ridiculed and dismissed. That, in fact, that was kind of a classic loon shot in Kennedy's announcement of we'll go to the moon was a classic moon shot. So the P-type loon shots are these technologies. So what's an S-type? S-type loon shot is a small change in strategy that doesn't involve any new technology. So, for example, there was a guy named Sam Walton who was a young guy Wanted to open a retail store. He just liked selling stuff. So instead of uh, going to big cities where all the people were, and everybody says you should, if you're going to do a retail store, you should go where everybody is. You should put it like on a main street in some you know sizable city. He ended up going to rural America. Now it wasn't really a, a calculated decision. He wanted to open a retail store, and his wife said. Uh, sure, honey, I'll support you in this kind of dream of yours, but I, I just don't like big cities. You can pick any town in America you want as long as it's less than 10,000 people. And uh, Walton said, uh, you know, he liked being married, so he said, okay. And he ended up uh, picking, he also liked quail hunting. And it turns out there's a region in the middle of the country where four states are right next to each other. And they each of those states have uh, you know, there's a there's a common point where the the four overlap, and each of those four states has a different quail season. So by being right near there, he could have quail season all year just by moving. So that was in northwest uh, Arkansas in a small town called Bentonville. So he put his store there, and it, there was no new technology. He just put his store somewhere else. He made it a little bit bigger than other stores, and he sold stuff a little cheaply. He didn't invent retail. There was no technology of, I know, let me let me charge people money for stuff. No, there was no new technology. He just opened a store in a slightly different place and sold stuff slightly cheaper and bigger volume. And boom, and you know, Walmart today is, you know, would be in the top 30 countries of the world by GDP if you ranked its its revenue. And it took over the industry. So that was an S-type loon shot. It's a small change in strategy. No new technology. If you look at what Google did or Facebook did, they had subtle shift. There was no radical technologies there. They had a subtle shift in strategy. Google, you know, there had been dozens of search companies and none of them made any money. And Google just had a, came up with a different idea for prioritizing what you should see for a search algorithm. Said, so let's rank what we show users by how many links it has going in. That was their original page ranking search algorithm. That was a different strategy. And that turned out to be a pretty big success. So P-type loon shots, S-type loon shots. And the reason it's important to be aware of the two is that people tend to have a blind spot, especially in Silicon Valley. There's, oh, product, 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 bigger, faster, better, bigger, faster, better, bigger, faster, better. And they miss a small change in strategy some competitor comes up with. That has nothing to do with the technology, and that completely is like a bullet to the head wipes them out. And that happens over and over and over. Yeah, there's a great story in the book that I hadn't heard before about how IBM made a few fateful decisions that paved the way for Microsoft and Intel to grow into the giants they would eventually become. What did IBM do wrong, and how dearly did it cost them? <laughs> it cost them a lot. The, uh, <laughs> So that's a classic example. Uh, I mean, there are many examples in Silicon Valley, probably 
because of this mindset of product, 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 uh, bigger, faster, better. So IBM, uh, for those who don't remember, IBM for probably 50, 60 years was the dominant technology company in the country, in the world. It was the entire computer industry for many decades was called IBM and the Seven Dwarfs. Its revenue was greater than the next uh, seven uh, companies combined. And so it thought of itself as a product company. It built the biggest, fastest, best products, and it was very, very good at that. And that's what it delivered to its customers, bigger, faster, better, bigger, faster, better every year. Um, and so people think, oh, well, you know, obviously IBM is no longer that great technology company. And people think, oh, well, that's, that's because of the personal computers. They were building mainframes and so forth. No, that's actually not at all what happened. In fact, when personal computers came around, IBM did great. They said, hey, this is another product. So let's, let's build another product. And they did. And in fact, within three years, they had, they were number one in personal computers. You, you may not remember, but the IBM PC and PCXT, actually I owned one of them, um, were the number one dominant uh, market share. And they, uh, Apple and Commodore and Tandy, who had uh, started earlier, all rapidly declined and IBM took over uh, completely the market. Uh, went to, I think, $5 billion in, uh, within the first three years of launching. They did a terrific job. So what happened? Well, they missed a small change in strategy and what customers cared about. What was that? So for the 50 years that they'd been product, product, company, they'd been building brand. So the IBM brand and the IBM logo and the IBM on the outside of the box, that's what their customers cared about because that signaled something and the big customer buyers cared about that brand. What they missed was a small change in strategy when they moved to the consumers. The consumer really didn't care that much about the brand of their box. What consumers cared about is emailing with their friends or sending files to their friends. And to do that, what mattered is the standards, the stuff on the inside of the box. And there were two things that drove those standards. One, the software operating system, and two, the microprocessor. When IBM built up its PC and proudly put its logo on the outside of that box, what did they do? They outsourced those two things, the components, which they never thought were very important because they're the big IBM and they've got the bundle and the box, to two tiny companies. One had 32 employees and was based in Seattle and was called Microsoft. And the other was a uh, somewhat struggling chip maker in Silicon Valley called Intel. Fast forward, today, Intel and Microsoft together are worth just over $1.5 trillion in market, value, in market value. IBM is less than 10% of that. So they got the product right. They were P-type focused, but they missed the subtle change in strategy. And that costs them $1.5 trillion. Okay, nice. Well, Safi, thank you very much for joining us to talk about Loon Shots. Congratulations on the publication of the book. Uh, I know that is no small feat, and uh, I'm sure it was a labor of love for you. Um, for for folks that are out there and may be interested in finding out more, they can visit the website at bacall.com. That's B-A-H-C-A-L-L.com. 
Uh, you can also follow Safi on Twitter at, at Safi Bacall. Um, anywhere else folks should be looking for you or looking for the book, Safi? Uh, loonshots.com is a little easier for people to remember. Loon, yes. Okay, good. Uh, and, and we will add links to, uh, to all of these sites in the show notes as well. Uh, obviously, you can find it on, on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, anywhere that good books can be, can be purchased. Um, love the website for the book too, by the way. Uh, very, very snazzy for sure. Thank um, you. And, uh, and, and really great anecdotes throughout the book. Didn't want to spoil them all here, um, but, uh, but brilliantly written and conceived. Uh, so thanks for contributing to the, to the canon and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the 3 Pillar website at 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.